What's the difference between anxiety and fear? Fear is a feeling that reacts to a clear, discernible threat or danger that anybody would be able to see or understand. Anxiety is the fear apprehension of um, or dread of conditions or feelings that have not arisen. In other words, it's the suspicion, anticipation, concern, worry that something bad might happen either externally or internally. But anxiety is based entirely on anticipation, whereas fear is based on actuality. And so tonight's talk is not about fear, because in most cases people's fears are generally very accurate. If there's a clear and present threat in front of you, I do urge you to follow your fear and let it determine how to uh, behave in many circumstances, at least it would be very helpful. But anxiety is quite a different beast. Now, I'm going to sort of talk about anxiety in the stages that it's developed in life. Uh, the first and earliest anxiety is the anxiety of annihilation. When we are infants, we feel very, well, I don't know about you, I certainly felt, I, I suspect, uh, very vulnerable, helpless, very uh, incapable of defending myself against anything. So the anxiety of annihilation is just the infant's recognition that it is in a large world with very little body control, very little defenses, very little uh, to protect it. And so it feels a sense of vulnerability which creates an anxiety. And so the mother, the caretaker, generally establishes a sense of security by lifting us up when we're infants and holding and cradling and creating a sense of uh, protection, security in the world, being looked after. Uh, they transmit security not through words at first, but by touch, holding us, caressing, giving a sense of protection, um, that, that feeling of movement, the uh, soothing of the facial expression, the wooing tone of voice, all of those things, the nonverbal cues that a caretaker sends, uh, creates for the infant the first real, very powerful feelings of being safe and connected. And that for us is uh, the wellspring of positive emotions arise from feeling connected. Our negative experiences, of disconnection create our negative emotions. Our positive experiences of connection create our positive emotions. So that feeling, by the way, I was uh, thinking about that feeling of being cradled. And I realized, uh, I watched this documentary, this is all on the side, it has nothing to do with the talk, but I'm just <coughs> following my train of thought. I, I watched this uh, documentary about this guy who spends his entire life rollerblading along the shoreline of the San Francisco, San Diego city, where there's a boardwalk, and he spends his entire day on rollerblades, just gliding. And he said that he had a theory, there's something about gliding that he said is absolutely uh, touches his heart. And I was thinking, you know, I too really love riding on my bike, that feeling of gliding. I realized that it quite possibly touches into that early experience of being cradled by a caretaker and being made to feel secure. Just that feeling of gliding, floating on water, swinging in a hammock, anything where there's this smooth, uh, constant movement of being held creates that sense of security. So do with that as you will. <laughs> uh, so eventually language is used to uh, 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 also convey uh, messages that make us feel secure. So this original experience of the mother providing, of the caretaker providing a sense of security, is the first safe container that we experience. Because it's so powerful, it also creates the second core anxiety 
of life, which is separation. If the first is being vulnerable and helpless, the second is the negative feelings of loneliness, sadness that occur when we are disconnected from those we love and feel protected by, or the anticipation of that state. To defend ourselves, the infant, when it is separated or feels the anticipation, because anxiety is largely about anticipating a, a, a separation that might happen, the infant will resort to two strategies. The first is fantasy, which is fleeing the external uh, experience where the mother is turning away, putting the child aside, going off to be with the father, or uh, in essence creating an abandonment experience. So the, ex the child seeks shelter or refuge inside the realm of imagination, creating an alternate experience, which is uh, essentially a defense mechanism. It's a defense mechanism because it pushes away the feeling of I've just been abandoned, I've just been deserted, I've just been cast away. So while the child is in fantasy, it doesn't have to feel those feelings. It becomes unaware of the body. Now the second approach an infant will do is it will do what's known as protest behaviors. It will stomp its feet, cry, shout, uh, act out, demand uh, reconnection with the mother. And this sets up, as, you, as we'll see, two different ways that we uh, relate to that which causes anxiety. We will either seek a defense mechanism that represses the experience, the emotion, the feeling in the body, because the feeling in the body of separation and vulnerability is overwhelming, painful, distressing. So as Winnicott noted, being up in our mind, in our fantasies, in our false self, and creating a story up here feels safer to the infant. And the second way we'll approach uh, anxieties is to protest, act out on their behalf, do anything to avoid or manipulate the world around us so that the dreaded experience will not occur. So the first, seeking internal repression, is literally an internal practice. The second is literally trying to manipulate the people around us so that we don't have to experience loss and abandonment. Okay? So the third big anxiety develops as we start to socialize. We go to schools. We go through that horrible, horrible uh, period where we are in the cafeteria with the tray and on the tray are little white plates with English muffin pizzas. Did you ever have those? I had those. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> Absolutely horrifying. They just dumped some, <laughs> dumped like on an English muffin, some ketchup and some melted cheese and they said this is your lunch and we loved it. We were like, oh great. <laughs> So the neurotic anxiety that arises is one of um, fear that an unconscious impulse will take control of us and make us act in a way that leads to social rejection. I'll say that again. Neurotic anxiety is not about the fact that we will be separated from somebody out there. It's not about that we're vulnerable. It's about the fear that I will do or say something at the behest of some inner impulse that will make you guys reject me. So anxiety, if you've been keeping track, moves from a fear of out there progressively in life to a fear of what's in here. There's something in me that uh, is bad. This, this fear, this neurotic fear, or anxiety, I should say, it's literally an anxiety, not a fear. Uh, this neurotic anxiety is born of the times when we're with our caretaker and the caretaker, we do something, we cry too loud, or we 
exhibit a, an emotional state that the caretaker can't deal with, so they pull away. So we begin to associate that there's some impulses we have that lead to separation, and then we go into a socializing setting of an educational uh, milieu, and then we're there with other kids, and they all seem to know each other, and then we say something and they all laugh at us, and it feels like the end of the world. So we begin to fear the, that there'll be something in us, in us that will rise, that will turn an impulse into a behavior that will make us experience rejection, ostracization, being shunned, being deserted, being cast out by the group, by the other kids, by the world around us. So when we enter the neurotic uh, anxiety phase, we also develop an entirely new set of defense mechanisms and strated protest strategies to uh, deal with these anxieties. Uh, as we become teenage, uh, teenagers and adults, the appeal of fantasy, I used to draw you know, superhero comic books in which I was... <laughs> I disclose everything. I'd be like some... <laughs> you know, nerdish little superhero that would vanquish thinly disguised other kids in my school. <laughs> and so that, uh, that realm of fantasy becomes less appealing as we go into our, you know, teenage and adult lives. So we move on to more mature or what are called like second level uh, defense mechanisms. Uh, the most important, I'll name the few, there's so many that it would, it would be uh, a waste of time to list them all, but there is intellectualization, which is to split away the emotional state that we're feeling in the body and just go into a story so that we don't have to feel our feelings in the body. Because again, we find the experience of... Um, Affects, which are our experience of emotions, we find that to be terrifying and we feel safer in our heads with stories. So um, I'll give you an example. I was on my way here uh, and joy of joy, I got to ride in the uh, New York City subway system, which I generally don't do because I ride my bike everywhere, but it's a catastrophe right now to ride your bike. So um, I was on the subway, and I was being jostled and pushed and elbowed and uh, leered at by disapproving uh, <laughs> Eastern Europeans, they appeared to be. <laughs> I say that because I'm of Eastern European origin, so I, expect, oh, I always expect that from them. <laughs> anyway... Uh, <laughs> I'm just projecting my family onto strangers. So anyway, uh, so I uh, was going up the staircase on the proper side. If you grow up in New York, you always stay to the right, and people are supposed to be there, and you're going up here, and they're supposed to be coming down. But some guy purposely went down against everybody and was stopping right in front, stopped right in front of me. And I... I I finally, I, I, I smelt a, a, a stalemate and crouching, and I decided that I, I don't really feel comfortable in macho charades of power, so I just stepped around them and just kept moving. But immediately, rather than feel the feeling of being bullied and being, you know, uh, having somebody just basically get in your space and the feelings of, you know, of the untidy feelings, I went into some story immediately. <laughs> Don't these people know what side of this? <laughs> you know, and I'm up there and I'm listening. Yes, yes. That's because I don't want to feel the... I don't want to feel the emotion of just being pushed around, you know, by the world. Uh, and this happens all the time. You, you know, you work, I mean, you, you, you don't, I mean, I'm just saying in general. One works maybe freelance, and then you, one doesn't get a call for a while. Uh, there's not a lot of work, and then suddenly um, uh, what pops up is 
these outlandish stories of uh, financial insecurity. I'm going to want a, pe- a homeless on the street, a penniless. Uh, I'm not going to be able to pay my rent. I'm not going to be able to afford my therapist. Oh my God, I'll be homeless with a therapist. What am I going to, you know, uh, what am I going to do? And actually what that is, though, is that's called catastrophizing. It's a version of intellectualization. And basically what it does is it keeps us from feeling the real underlying feeling when we're not getting work, which is literally the core feeling is the world doesn't love me. I'm not loved. They're not calling me up. Why aren't they calling my phone? They don't love me. Nobody wants to feel that. So instead, we go up into the story of, you know, I'm going to be broke. I'm not going to be able to survive, even though we could look at that intellectually in one level and know that it's not true. We go along with these fantastic catastrophizing stories because they make us feel prepared, but they also, on a deeper level than providing false security, at a really deeper level, they're hiding uh, an emotional experience that we don't really want to open to. And it seems like, well, I, my catastrophizing going into the worst per- possible outcomes are horrible. Why would I find that preferable? And literally, it's because we have not yet shown ourselves that we can hold and be with difficult emotional activations in the body. We still will feel the most frightening, catastrophic, dire prediction more preferable than actually just opening to the sadness, the anxiety, the uh, anger, whatever it is that needs to be felt. So what happens is, um, and another, another strategy we'll do is called avoidance coping. Avoidance coping is we'll progressively avoid any situation where we feel we might act out on a neurotic impulse. So I used to have this fear, since I'm disclosing everything ridiculous about myself, why not just continue? I used to have this felt uh, anxiety when I would go, my parents were really big in assimilating, they were right off the boat and so they would take us to uh, theater and ballet and opera, all of which I hated and they really couldn't afford but whatever, it was part of the project to become American and, uh, and uh, so I was there and I would feel this impulse to scream in this crowded theater when the lights would go out. I'd feel this really overwhelming feeling, you know? And I think it was partially a protest against being dragged to these, like, uh, events that I had no interest in, and, but it was also just a, a repressed impulse to be seen by the world, to not be relegated into this child that's being dragged around from one cultural event to another that was uh, utterly... Uh, of no interest to me. But anyway, so I would feel this impulse and it created an anxiety about going to any place where the lights would go out and people were supposed to be quiet. And I still today feel it a little bit, but I'll purposely go against it just to make sure that I still can. It's that, that impulse. People uh, also have it uh, with fear of heights. The myth is that fear of heights is, you know, that something will push us over and we'll fall and we'll be killed. But really, fear of heights is a fear that some impulse in us will make us jump over the edge of a roof. And that's why people don't want to get anywhere near heights, because they know that situation is where they'll feel the impulse. And so they're avoiding the anxiety. So as you see, anxiety can create avoidance coping strategies which then can push us further and further away from different areas in life where we could grow and uh, develop um, an ability to hold impulses without acting out on them. Surely that's a good idea. (laughs) Um, Now all of this has a lot of drawbacks. I'll name three of them. The first is that a lot of the feelings and fears that we, uh, we repress the anxieties that we repress uh, are actually worth knowing. As Antonio Damasio noted in his book, he's a great neuroscientist, we cannot 
be rational without consulting our emotions. And he did all these studies with card players and with judges and with different people, and he would uh, note how big a role the unconscious registration of body states and emotions would play in making critical decisions. And he noted that when people would have certain, um, uh, they'd have certain conditions where the insula would be destroyed and they couldn't have emotion recognition of the body, they'd start acting insane. And he noted that when people are very good at their jobs, they rely very often on intuition which is essentially an emotional response to anticipated events. So we do need to, to integrate all emotions, including fear and the intended anxieties of what might happen, into our rational process. We cannot live without it. Two, very often anxiety... Uh, the repression of anxiety and all it's associated with will conceal very important information. So, for example, uh, we might be in a relationship that we're not happy with, and then an anxiety might come up, well, I can't, um, I can't act on this impulse because I'm enmeshed with this other person, we're together, I won't be able to survive, or whatever. And so we'll repress both the anxiety and the, the emotional recognition that there's something wrong in our life, and we will keep ourselves in denial of very, very important, crucial information that needs to be attended to. Very often, people will have anxiety over their sexuality. We all grew up, and well, not all of you, I grew up in a, a wildly homophobic, uh, very a rigid culture with ridiculous gender expectations and macho expectations. And any time I felt any little impulse that transgressed across these very strict rules and expectations, I felt enormous anxiety and the desire to repress down any honest impulse. And it's very normal if you're a kid to not just have desires that flow in 100% in the cultural expectation. But tell that to a kid, you know, growing up in the 1970s. I was like, I'm a punk rocker. I'm going to tough. I'm going to go to uh, mosh pits. Because that way they'll see that I have nothing but hyper-masculine desires. <laughs> so we'll repress anything. And the, the problem is you can't repress. These are, these are what makes us whole, complete, fluid dynamic human beings, which is that we don't fit into strict molds. We don't fit into nice and tidy path, you know, uh, uh, boxes or whatever. So, and finally, our reliance on stories, narratives, intellectualization, and all the other, and catastrophizing is that it keeps on re-triggering anxiety rather than teaching us how to simply hold and be with that which that those feelings. If we don't know how to hold anxiety, we will spend our lives running away from everything that triggers even the slightest little anxiety. And so there's nothing more important than being able to speak that, hold that which creates fear and anxiousness. So that's what the role of the therapist in Western culture does. They create a safe container where you or I could go and sit and express the, uh, that which we feel but are terrified of. We could express the anxiety, express the core impulses, and then we could have them mirrored back safely our impulses and fears would be re-represented back to us by the therapist in the same way that the caretaking mother soothes and calms our emotional states when we're infants. The, care, the therapist is, in essence, reproducing the same safe container that we experienced as a child. So, 
If it works, we develop mature emotion regulation processes. If immature, unsuccessful emotion regulation is based on trying to get rid of emotions or trying to act out, protest on their behalf, uh, what happens then is that the, those emotional states are never regulated. And when they come out, when we finally let our rage or our fear or our sadness come out, they come out in floods and waves that are barely decipherable by, by the people around us. If we, for example, been repressing a, a fear of something, uh, speaking in public, and then we have to speak in public, it will not come out, that anxiety will not come out tidily, it will come out in overwhelming experiences of panic attacks and dread and, you know, just outright catastrophizing fear. So emotion regulation, on the other hand, is feeling these, going to the root, feeling in the body, what is really there that's seeking recognition, holding it, opening to it, even the when it's just a pure anxiety of that which might happen, holding that anxiety, not repressing it through intellectualization or fantasy or avoidance, but literally, like the mother, we're cradling our own experience, holding it in the body. So it's a very physical, somatic experience. Now, some people might say, isn't this bashing thinking? And it's not. I mean, thinking is really a vital part of spiritual practice. It's a vital part of your life. It's how you make a lot of your decisions. But when it comes down to the process of learning to create a safe container for difficult emotions, that's the one time in life that we have to put the thought, figuring it out, solving agenda away, and we have to just go into the feeling, feeling into the experience. So, uh, let's put that aside and talk a little bit about the Buddha, then we're going to go into uh, to, um, the practice itself. So the Buddha had a very similar understanding. He said that we enter life after early experience with something called Nama Rupa, N-A-M-A, Rupa, and that creates these underlying moods and inclinations. One could understand them as just core anxieties and core desires. The Buddha said then we connect with situations in the world and inner feeling states, and due to our proclivities and anxieties and inclinations, feelings arise in the body. If I contact something that creates a feeling of insecurity, I will start to feel experiences of tightness in my stomach or in my chest or in my shoulders. It will create a physical registration of the fact I don't feel safe. If on the other hand I contact you and we get together and we laugh and we connect and we bond and we share and we, we feel uh, an understanding, then I will feel sensations of ease and relaxation. My body will feel good. And so it's inevitable that the next stage, the Buddha said, is we crave to get rid of that which feels uncomfortable and we crave to keep that which feels good. Now this is not neuroscience. Sometimes the steps he makes from one to the next seem pretty obvious, but that's where the big movement happens because the Buddha said when we get into that desire to get rid of unpleasant feelings born of fear or anger or um, self-centered, that's his third big uh, cause of uh, negative experience, which is self-centered fixation. The Buddha said what happens is we experience negative, tight feelings. We try to get rid of them. How do we get rid of them? The exact same way that psychologists propose. The Buddha said we either think stories to distract ourselves and repress the feelings in the body. 
those are two kinds. He says we will think stories about the world and the way the world should be, or we'll think stories about ourselves and the way we should be. Often they're negative stories. But the whole point of these stories is to pull our awareness away from the feeling, to go back up into the head. And the Buddha said the second way is that we will resort to behaviors that will push away awareness of the negative feeling, which is a sense like the protest behavior of the infant. The Buddha said we'll cling and seek out addictions like drugs and alcohol and food and anything that makes us feel good so that we don't have to feel that negative experience. Or we will just fall into a habit, a routine, something that we do daily. We see this all the time when we procrastinate. We don't like doing our taxes or we don't like uh, writing something that we have to write, so we put it off and then we go on the intertube to look at all the websites and go on to the Twitter and the Facebook and I like saying this, I do this all the time, but Anyway, it's a distraction so we don't have to feel or be aware of that which creates anxiety. So the Buddha says the exact same thing, essentially, as Western psychology. We are averse to negative expressions of fear, anxiety in the body, and we will do anything we can to repress or act out in such a way that we won't have to experience it whether through avoidance or through seeking distracting pleasures. So the Buddha's solution is interesting. The Buddha did talk about finding wise spiritual practitioners that we can share and talk about it. So he does acknowledge the sort of therapeutic model of seeking an external form of emotion regulation where we can safely share and learn how to verbalize and and talk about these, that which creates anxiety. But the Buddha also proposes a second model, which is called sati. Uh, it's been really poorly translated as mindfulness. It's not what sati really means. Sati really means just to keep something in mind. And what does the Buddha want us to keep in mind? He wants us to keep in mind the breath, the feelings in the body, the moods and energy levels in the mind, but not the stories. So what he's doing is he's inverting the way we normally do or deal with that which creates anxiety or anger or sadness. Rather than go up and try to figure it out and solve and create a story of that son of a bitch, those people, uh, you know, as one, uh, one notable... Uh, uh, defense mechanism is called uh, justification bias, which is anytime uh, I achieve something good in life, it's because of my own hard work, but anytime uh, something doesn't work out to my plans, it's because of them. <laughs> it's because of the world. So that's what we, uh, we do. We go up and we appeal there, and the Buddha is saying, no, we have to feel it in the breath, feel it in the body, feel how each state changes the mood of the mind. And if we can do that, then we can develop a safe container where we can hold and process and be with our emotions, our, even our anxiety, and not repress it, and not um, try to avoid things in our lives at its behest. We'll actually simply be able to touch it and be with it and soothe it, which is the last part of the process. So, that's the talk. So find a comfortable seated position. And... Closing the eyes. Boy, that would be irritating if I let a meditation in that voice. <laughs> Closing the eyes and relaxing the body. <laughs> so, 
let's take three breaths just to uh, unite us together in this uh, endeavor and also to relax the body. Now, during this meditation, if at any point you feel pain or real physical discomfort, do not feel that or do not uh, believe that you are compelled to sit absolutely rigidly in the same position. All I ask is that if you do need to move at some point, to do it in as quiet a way, even quieter than you think you need to be, so that the people who are sitting directly adjacent to your left or right or behind you or in front of you will not have to be distracted from what they are focusing on. So you don't have to sit motionlessly, but I do ask just to, if you do need to move at any point, just do it in a really quiet way. So take a nice full deep in-breath through the nose, and as you do, pull your shoulders all the way up to the ears, like you're trying to touch your ears, and then hold the breath, and then when you release it through the mouth, release the shoulders all the way down. Wonderful. So, again, a nice, long, deep in-breath through the nose, and this time pulling in the belly as tight as you can so that your belly is becoming two inches thinner, and then when you release, soften the belly. And then the third will be squinching the face muscles and the arms. So, pulling in, breathing, and squinching the face and the arms. Nobody's looking, just squinch them in, and when you breathe out, relax. So the in-breath is associated with bringing energy and life, and the out-breath is associated with ease and restoring a sense of calm, abiding. So for the purposes of this meditation, I'd like you to settle the mind in a way that develops a great deal of peace, or as much peace as available to you right now, and there's a couple of ways you can do that. The first is to try to make the out-breath as long as possible. So counting one with the in and then two with the out, and you make the number two as long as possible, as long as the out-breath is, and you make that out-breath as long as you can. And then three is short, it's just the in-breath, it'll know how much air to take in, and then four is really long. And then five is the next in-breath, And then when you go back out, you count down to four, which is really long. So one, three, and five are always on in-breaths. And they're always of no set length, whatever feels natural. But two and four are always on the out-breath, and they're always as long and smooth as you can. Now, if you don't like working with the breath, no worries. Just use a phrase like, I love you, keep going, and just repeat it softly. Or may I feel safe. As a third, you could use the sound of the room, just listening as sounds arrive and pass, or visualizing a place where you feel really secure. The goal is to build up a sense of security and ease in the body.
So the mind is quite used to resorting to plans and memories and fantasies. We've been training it to do that all our lives as it creates a felt sense of refuge or security. And sometimes while it can be enjoyable, other times it can distract us from the task at hand. So if you note that you're being pulled away, just gently say, I see you. I know that you're a thought. You're not real. It's okay. You allow it to be there. You don't need to push anything away. And just gently bring your awareness back to what is creating ease. Your metaphrase or the breath. So at this point, allow whatever concentration practice you've been using to fade into the background, whether it's the breath, awareness, or sounds, or metaphrases. Now, let's bring to mind and you might want to contemplate this an experience that creates a feeling of anxiety something that we are uncomfortable with that might happen a fear that some experience in the past that has been unpleasant will repeat itself, something we've been avoiding, something that we're hoping to avoid. So very often it might be of an interpersonal nature though people can also fear going to the dentist or fear going back home fear going back into the dating experience after a relationship has ended fear running into someone fear creatively expressing themselves and trying to be heard, fear, rejection, fear. Fear being ridiculed, fear not being taken seriously. Hold an image that really represents what that might look like, just whatever image you can conjure. And without going into a narrative, a whole story about how it would play out, which would be not to our purposes, but simply an image, and just ask a very open-ended question. 
What would this feel like? What does the fear feel like, or the anxiety, or what would what would it be like to be rejected, not seen, not loved, not cared for? What would it be like to be in a relationship again where I'm not seen, mirrored? What would it be like to be in a situation where people can't see me for who I am? And try to locate the core of the emotion, the root of the experience in the body. For example, you might feel suddenly a contraction in the chest or in the belly. And then when you breathe into it, it might suddenly feel really tight or it might release waves of energy. You might feel it in the shoulders locking or the throat can feel clenched and tight like someone's strangling us. Where can you meet anxiety? Even if it's very subtle, just see if you can find just the slightest inklings. And sometimes if we've been avoiding feeling fear for years upon years, maybe no physical expression will occur. But just keep on welcoming it. If you just feel an inkling, welcome it. I'm allowed to be frightened. I'm allowed to feel anxious. I'm allowed to have this feeling. You're welcome. Fear can sometimes be like the most frightened animal in the jungle. And while other animals will come out by the watering hole, fear will sometimes, because we've shunned it for so long, will be the last little creature to make itself known as a feeling in the body. But whenever it begins to peek out, even in the slightest sensation, just welcome. We're showing ourselves that we can be with our emotional lives. Whatever is present, whether you feel barely nothing, or you feel some activation, some energy, some shift, or clenching in the body, or tightness, contraction, just welcome and nurture it. It's okay. We'll be okay. We're not... an infant any longer, I can protect us. Permitting fear, but reassuring it as well. 
Just a simple, I care about you, I'll take care of you. So in a moment I'm going to ring the bell. I encourage you to, when you hear the sound and when it's time to open your eyes, just think of sight as something you're very gradually adding back into awareness. But don't use it as an opportunity to rush away from anything you've been touching, feeling, connecting with no matter how small or whatever has occurred, we want to incorporate sight but not use the world around us as an escape from what we feel. We want to stay connected and we stay connected by feeling into the body. Noting the mood in the mind. seeing how the breath has been changed. Being with the experience. Sai, thank you for listening. Before I go into the uh, question period,